you have a Bible this morning, open up to John chapter 5. Remember, it's not a sin to use the table of contents. If you have no idea where John is, that's okay. We're going to be in the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember, we're in the gospel accounts. The gospels say, someone is here right now. And so we are looking at the person and work and the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we open up to John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 30 to 47 this morning. And so we'd love for you to have that open. There's also a pew Bible there, hopefully near you, if you did not bring a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there is, uh, there's some blue ESV paperbacks on the right-hand side as you walk out. Please grab one of those, write your name in it, take it with you. Um, we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you this morning, especially as we go through this passage verse by verse. And as you're turning there this morning, I want to tell you an, an old joke that's kind of made its way around. You may have heard it. If not, then get ready. Um, it's about a priest responding to a flash flood warning. And the water level starts rising, and he has faith that God will save him. And as the water is up to his knees, an old man in a rowboat comes by and says, Hey, do you need a lift? And he says, No. Thank you. I have faith that the Lord will save me. Use your boat to find those who are in more need than I am. And so the rowboat heads off, and soon the water is up to the priest's chest. And a rescue boat loaded with supplies comes up to him. Grab my hand, the captain yells. Let's get out of here together. He says, No. The Lord is going to take care of me. He's going to save me. There are others who need help. And so reluctantly, that rescue boat rides off. As the water continues to rise, the priest is forced up to the roof of his home. And the helicopter flies over to him and lowers a winch. Hold on, shouts the guy from the helicopter as he holds out his hand. But again, the priest shakes his head and says, No, the Lord's going to save me. Go and find other people. And so frustrated, this helicopter flies away. And sadly, the water continues to rise. It becomes too much for the priest to deal with, and he goes under the water. And he finds himself in heaven, absolutely stunned. And after going through the pearly gates, he walks straight up to God and says, Lord, I spent my life devoted to you. I believed that you would protect me through the hardest times of my life. And yet, when I needed you most, when when my life was at stake, you weren't there for me. God in the joke replies, what are you talking about? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. (laughs) It's an old joke, but a good joke for a reason. And that joke has survived the test of time because aside from being mildly funny, like any good joke, it reveals something that we all have in in common, right? That's like what good comedy does. It points to something that we all kind of share and kind of brings it out. And so what this joke reveals is that despite all evidence and despite multiple voices speaking to it, we can still miss what is clearly in front of us, can't we? I remember when I was in college, I got invited up to come to like one of these games or game shows at like our weekly campus ministry meeting. And, you know, they were giving away like a, it was like a, a tube of like really smelly medicine cream. And so it was like, who wants to win this? That was the prize. And so we went up there and I I remember being asked these questions and I got asked this one particular question and in my mind, I knew that I was right. But everyone else around me was yelling an answer contrary to mine and they could see me waffling and despite all of these other voices out here, I still went with my gut and went with my answer, which was wrong. And so, you know, despite all these other voices, I'm like, no, I think I know what's best. 
In the end, I did not know what's best, but I'm also thankful that I didn't have to go home with that tube of smelly medicine cream. So I guess it worked out. This is a continuation this morning as we look at John chapter 5, starting in verse 30. It's a continuation of the conversation Jesus had with the Jewish leaders who, according to verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Jesus was claiming to be God and claiming to be equal with God the Father, and they saw this as blasphemy. And as we read this text this morning, I want you to notice the other witnesses and evidence that Jesus points to as he builds his case. Now keep in mind, Jesus did not have to appeal to these other sources to prove his co-eternal status as a member of the triune Godhead. He said it. He said, I am a member. My Father and I are one, and I'm, I'm the Son of God. He said it, and that settles it. doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. It's factual. That settles it. Jesus did not have to appeal to all these. But why did he do it? He appeals to these other sources. He appeals to these other witnesses to point out the blindness of his accusers. Because remember, these people are coming to him, and they're, they're trying to take him out. And so let's keep that in mind. Let's look for these witnesses as we move through here together this morning. And we'll see together how the Lord appeals to this. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5. It's okay, dude. We love you. No big deal. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word from John chapter 5. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is, the, it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that you are not hiding from us. You have revealed yourself to us. And we ask and pray for your help this morning as we look to the words of life. Father, please be with me. Help me to only speak those things that are true and right. And Father, we pray that you would change our hearts this morning as we sit under your word. Meet us here. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
As we looked at this text this morning, if you have been an adult for more than five minutes, you know the importance of a notary. Usually these mythical people live in the shadows somewhere until you have an important document that needs to be signed, right? And then we scour the countryside looking for these magical unicorns because they are the only ones who can help us in this moment. And not just anyone can claim to be a notary. They are trained and officially commissioned by a local, state, or federal government to carry out their duties. And as many of you know, in non-legalese jargon, okay, a notary's job is to officially bear witness to the signing of important documents and to ensure that those signing the documents are who they claim to be and are signing willingly. And what their seal does is it is acts as a guarantee. And so if you've ever been on the hunt for a notary and you've realized the importance of having someone who can put their seal as a guarantee on that document that it was signed correctly. Last week, Dr. Hawks reminded us of a common objection to Jesus that we covered back in John chapter 1, way back when. Almost everyone agrees that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. Most people would agree that he was a good moral teacher and that he built a following of some sort. But the wheels fall off, don't they, when you start claiming that Jesus is the Son of God. That's where the wheels kind of fall off. And when you move beyond he's just a good moral teacher into, no, we actually believe that he is the unique Son of God, co-eternal member of the triune Godhead. We believe what he says about himself, that he is the Son of God. That's where the wheels fall off. And so... Yet Jesus himself claimed to be God, claimed to have full authority, and claimed to be in perfect step with the will of the Father. You see that in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. Dr. Hawks talked about the fact that the Father and the Son, they are working together, and they have one plan. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But the next objection comes right on the heels of this declaration where the watching world says, well, anyone can claim anything. Just because you claim something doesn't make it true. Prove it. Jesus can say, you know, I'm the son of God. And I can say, well, I'm a walking ham sandwich. Just because you claim it doesn't mean it's true. Prove it. Again, this reveals just how skeptical our culture is today. We don't accept hardly anything on faith anymore. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament law demanded two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 talks about this, that for anything to be admissible in court, most cases were tried in public at the city gates, you needed two or more witnesses. And this principle was never revoked, and it's appealed to several times in the New Testament. You have Matthew chapter 18, where it talks about conflict resolution, and if you have someone take along a witness or two with you, you also see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. And you think about the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20 with the giving of the Ten Commandments. The ninth commandment prohibits bearing false witness and perverting judgment or justice. And so as we see Jesus being accused of breaking the law of God, which again, Dr. Hawks reminded us last week, this is something Jesus never did. He never broke the law of God. He never sinned. This passage will make more sense if we view it through the lens of an Old Testament legal defense. Jesus is defending himself from these accusers by appealing to two or more witnesses. It helps the passage make sense. And look at verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. 
He's talking about that Old Testament principle of appealing to witnesses. Jesus is not resting on his own testimony, although, as we've said before, that's sufficient in and of itself. He appealed to several corroborating witnesses because he knew that his accusers would not listen to him on his own testimony. And they were seeking to kill him because he was claiming to be the Son of God. And so what he is doing is he's appealing to these witnesses to stop their accusations and to stop them and to reveal their blindness. And so those are our witnesses that we look at are going to be our sermon points this morning. And the big question that I want us to ask is, how do these witnesses give us confidence in the person and work of Christ? How do these corroborating witnesses actually give us more confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ? As Dr. Hawks asked us last week, or encouraged us last week, to trust Jesus even more, how do these witnesses only add to that and help us trust Christ all the more? Those are going to be our points. Our first point this morning is witness number one, John the baptizer. Jesus starts with someone every Jew in Israel knew about. John had created a national stir when after a 400-year period of silence, God called John seemingly out of obscurity to testify to the coming of the Messiah. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, we covered this seems like forever ago, says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That was his job, was to be a witness. In verse 35, we see that Jesus reminded the Jewish leaders that they once basked in the light and heat of John's ministry, but John had one purpose, to point to Christ and his salvation. Remember, John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. My whole job is to point to him, look to him. But even though John was the first true prophetic voice in over 400 years, the Jewish leaders did not believe him and they shunned him. They ignored the clear message of the coming of the Messiah that was right there in front of them. They were like that guy on the roof in the joke. The evidence is out there and they refused to believe it. And so Jesus applies to another witness here. This is our second point, moving through them quickly. Our second point is the miracles. So John the baptizer, this next witness, is miracles. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. These works, these signs and miracles that Jesus performed. Now, typically, today, typically, we think that miracles prove the existence of God, and they don't. They don't prove the existence of God. The very fact that anything is considered to be a miracle actually presupposes the existence of God because miracles, by default, are supernatural. His existence has never been in doubt. And we don't need to look to miracles to say, look, God exists. God just has always existed. The miracles just prove that He's at work in our world. And so what biblical miracles are used to do often is to authenticate the messengers that God sent to prove that they are the genuine article. An example of this is Nicodemus' words to Jesus in John chapter 3. You remember that midnight meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to Jesus, said, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Like there's something different about you. You are performing these miracles and signs and wonders, and it's to authenticate 
the messenger that God sends. And so Jesus appeals actually to the very miracles that his accusers are pointing to as prosecution evidence. Remember, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda and he says, take up your mat and walk. He's healed. It's this public healing right there that happens. And what you also see is, is that is the thing now that the accusers are bringing to him and saying, we have this against you. You have performed a miracle. <laughs> and they're using it as prosecution evidence. It's amazing when you think about what's going on here. And so now, in John chapter 10, verses 36 to 38, we'll get to this uh, hopefully soon. It says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And Jesus is saying, look, these miracles, these signs that I do, authenticate me as the Son of God. Remember, he doesn't have to appeal to them. He is the Son of God. Nothing can change that. But remember, he's, he's being accused of breaking the law of God, and he's, he's being accused of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. Now, we think about today, many skeptics in the watching world have sought to discredit Jesus' divinity by attacking his miracles as simple parlor tricks or products of ancient ignorance. And remember, the vast majority of Jesus' miracles were very public. They were testified to by many people. And I would argue that people in the ancient Near East were much more acquainted with sickness and death because they interacted with it almost daily. Think about folks then, they lived hard and short lives. Many of them, many of those lives lived under constant occupation by a Roman occupying force, this trained army that was constantly at war, trying to grab more and more territory and these, you know, these ancient Roman emperors who many of them were just horrible. And every successive generation thinks that their present generation is superior. And this represents a certain present Western cultural snobbery that presupposes that, a cultural, that, a, that an ancient culture associated with some of the greatest literature, architecture, philosophy, etc. was too dumb to know what a dead body was when they saw one or what a paralyzed person looked like before Jesus brought healing and restoration. To simply say that these folks who built all of these amazing buildings and came up with all this philosophy and math and art, that these people were too dumb to know what a paralyzed person was, and that when Jesus healed him, that suddenly the paralyzed guy that we've been looking at, he suddenly is now walking again. Or this guy was dead, and now he's alive. To say that they just, it was a parlor trick, or they didn't know what, it's a laughable objection. It's laughable. And these things happened in real space and time. And were seen and testified to by hundreds of others and fully authenticate Jesus as the Son of God. And they remind us that we can trust Jesus even more because he is the genuine article. The Father has set his seal upon him and nothing can revoke it. And when we are prone to doubt Jesus' testimony about his power in the midst of our own hardship and suffering, let us remember that these witnesses remind us all of the full divinity of Jesus Christ. He is who he says he is, the unique Son of God. Like an important document that bears witness to our signing it, the Father's seal upon his Son reminds us that all of the promises of God, which find their yes and amen in Christ, are already signed, sealed, and soon to be fully delivered. It is set. It is done. And we look with great expectation and with great hope to this day of fulfillment.
Now we see a third witness come in. You have John the baptizer, you have miracles that Jesus, that Jesus appeals to. Now we see in our third point, the Father himself. Jesus continues to pile on the witnesses as he references the voice of the Father that was heard audibly at his baptism that you can read about in great detail in Matthew chapter 3. When the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And these same words, this same exact phrase, would later be heard audibly on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. I mean, think about this. Like the man on the roof with those floodwaters rising around him, the Jewish leaders, those that are coming and accusing Jesus, clearly missed the sign that salvation is in their midst. They're so blinded by their pride and jealousy that they missed the promised Messiah standing right in front of them. You see this theme constantly where they send a little envoy out to investigate John the Baptist. And he's like, the Messiah's right there and you've missed him. You're missing this promised one. Here's what Gordon Ketty said in his commentary. He said, The voice and form of God were before them in the person of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. They did not believe Jesus and, were so inca- and so were incapable of seeing what was otherwise remarkably clear and wonderfully supported by the evidence. Their unbelief meant that they had no meaningful relationship with God. Consequently, the Father's witness is accessible only to those who believe on the Son. Now, the clear warning for us this morning as we stand on the roof of a fallen world with what seems to be like the floodwaters rising around us is think about who Jesus is speaking to in this text. He's speaking to the religious folks. That's the clear warning for us this morning. They were more concerned with their personal agendas than they were with cultivating a relationship with God. And Jesus offers this crushing indictment of them. Remember, these are the spiritual leaders, the religious folks. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you. What a crushing indictment. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and saying, okay, Dave, I've never met John the baptizer. I've never witnessed a paralyzed man being miraculously healed with only a word. I've never heard the audible voice of God. How can you possibly expect me to know and believe all of this? Okay, fair enough, a fair enough objection. But there is something that you do have. It is a Bible. That's our fourth witness, the Scriptures. Look at verses 39 and 40. Jesus says to the religious leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Remember... These were the people who prided themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures at the time. And they missed that they all pointed forward to the one standing right in front of them. We've said before, the whole Old Testament says someone is coming. The person of Jesus, this promised Messiah. As we're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. Who is that someone? Jesus Christ. The whole Bible points forward to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 starts off with, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I was reading a commentary and R.C. Sproul told a story about a time when he went and spoke to a, he was invited to come speak to a university 
and to their atheist club about the existence of God. They invited Sproul to come and talk about that. And here's what he said. He said, I went to Romans 1 and talked about how God has manifestly, clearly, and without ambiguity revealed himself to every creature, and that this knowledge gets through to every person. As much as we fight and kick against it, we can't extinguish that light. And so we are left, according to the apostle, without excuse. Our problem is not that we don't know God exists. Our problem is that we refuse to acknowledge the God whom we know to be true. Woo! If you are here today and you do not claim Christ as your Lord, how much evidence do you need before you finally believe that Jesus is who he claims to be? How much more evidence do you need? If you are here and you do trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, how much more evidence do you need to fully trust his promise to be faithful to you until the very end? The lack of evidence is not the problem, is it? The problem's right here in our own hearts. That's where the problem resides. The Bible that every one of you has right now within arm's length at this very moment testifies to the person and work of Jesus Christ in real space and time as the unique, fully divine, fully human Son of God in whom we live and move and have our being. The question is, do you read it? Every one of you has within arm's length a Bible. This witness that Jesus himself appeals to. Look at the scriptures and see how they testify to me and who I am. Remember, we think the scripture was written by one guy hiding in a dark cave. Okay, This is not Mormonism. This Bible was written by multiple authors over multiple generations in multiple parts of different parts of the world. And it's as if it all clicks together like one person wrote it. It's amazing when you think about this. And the testimony, the personal testimony where these writers say, look, if you don't believe me, go ask this person, this person, and this person who were all alive at the time. They said Jesus was raised from the grave and here's all these witnesses that saw it. Go ask them yourself. The Bible calls us to come and to wrestle with these claims. It doesn't say, oh, well, we don't have any evidence to support it. They're like, here it is. Come and take it on. It's the amazing thing about the scriptures when we think about it. In reality, the problem, if we're honest with ourselves, is not a lack of evidence. The problem is our hearts. Only God can tune our hearts to hear his voice. In verses 43 to 47, Jesus has this withering exchange with his accusers as he brings up Moses. Remember, Moses was an Old Testament prophet, this vaulted one in the Old Testament, this powerful man that God called and used in a mighty way. He was an Old Testament prophet. He heard the audible voice of God. He performed miracles himself, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. You think about that. All elements of all four of those witnesses were there in the person of Moses. Little elements of those. His accusers were looking to him for salvation instead of the one he was pointing to all along. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, would you believe me? For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? When we think about this, the law of God that they were appealing to and that we've talked about already, the law of God only revealed their sin. It could never atone for it. Jesus points out that they're only seeking glory for themselves, not the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. 
And in essence, they were putting their faith in their law-keeping and religious performance more than the Messiah that the entirety of their scripture pointed to. And again, there's a clear warning for us this morning as we sit in a church pew on a Sunday morning. And that warning for us is we can rely on ourselves more than Christ, and we can look really spiritual while we do it. When in all actuality we say, I'm going to do what I want to do and live my life under my own strength, and I can look really spiritual while I do it. This morning, what are you operating on? Are you looking to Christ alone for all that you have? Or are you still trying to save yourself and then just sprinkling a little, little religion over the top of it? It's a clear warning for us this morning. Look at how these guys, steeped in the Old Testament law, steeped in the Scriptures, they missed it. They totally missed it. And were seeking to kill the one whom God sent to save. And so what if our lives this morning look more like the guy stranded on the roof with us asking for a sign? What could possibly convince us to either believe for the first time this morning or to keep trusting by faith? There's a bonus fifth witness. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Our fifth witness this morning, our bonus witness, this is a bonus point, is the resurrection. How do we really know that Jesus is who he claimed to be? The resurrection. Here's what Lee Strobel said. If you know Strobel's background, was an atheist journalist who decided to go and to take on the claims of Christ and tried to eviscerate them as a journalist. He brought all of his journalistic and you know, data-gathering mind and background to his attempt to try to discredit Jesus in the Scriptures. And in the end, he found out that the Scriptures stand up on their own quite fine, thank you very much and that Jesus actually is the Son of God, and He came to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as His Savior, and now writes. And so with that background, listen to this quote that, that Strobel would later say. He said, The resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and His inspired teaching. It's the proof of His triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of His followers. It's the basis of the Christian hope. It is the miracle of all miracles. The law of God written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit reveals God's holiness, our sin, and our need for a Savior. And that Savior was promised on page 2 of the Bible. Genesis 3, 15. That's, page, that's two pages if you have a large print. Okay, that's being generous. I've said before, humanity makes it a page and a half in the Bible before we completely mess it up. And on the heels of that, God promises this Redeemer, this one who's going to come, who's going to Make it all new again. That's a page and a half in. Jesus is, that's the first time the gospel is mentioned in the scripture. John the baptizer saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. On the cross, Jesus said something else, did he not? He said, It is finished. As he took upon himself the wrath and judgment that we justly deserved because of our sin and rebellion, and on that third day, he rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures, as the risen lamb, as the risen savior and the good shepherd of all those who look to him by faith. Now, as we continue to walk by faith and not by sight, and we entrust ourselves fully to him, along with our families, those walking with the Lord, those who are not, we entrust our futures to him, our jobs, 
our hurts, our failures, our pain, our worries, our fear, our joy, our sorrows. We entrust all of these things to Him because we know that Jesus is trustworthy. Why? Because He actually is the Son of God with full power to help and to save. He actually is who He says He is, borne out by the testimony of the ages. And so as we stand on the roof and it feels like the floodwaters of life and a fallen world continue to rise around us along with the scoffing voices of a God-hating world, O church, please be reminded of this. Let us remember that God will save us. He has already saved you. If you are here and you are in Christ, the best thing that will ever happen to you has already happened to you in Christ through the cross. And He will walk with you. The Father has given us something way better than two boats and a helicopter, hasn't He? He's given us His very Son. And He's also given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we are the children of God and heirs to all the promises that find their yes and amen in Christ. And so, as we finish up here, we think about these great promises that go out. We look look to another sign-sealed and soon-to-be-delivered promise of Jesus that comes in the last few verses of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. Thank you for these witnesses that we have, this evidence that we have, that we can point to and know that you are who you say you are. Father, we thank you that you are our hideaway, as we have already sung. We can hide in who you are because you have hidden us in you. Father, we are grateful for that. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for all the ways that we have doubted your word. Pray that you would forgive us for all the ways that we have neglected your word. Father, we pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. Renew our hearts, renew our minds, O Lord that we can see the world through your eyes, O Lord. And help us to be faithful as a church as we look with great hope and with great expectation to your second coming, O Lord. And Give us the strength to be faithful day by day, even when it's hard. Help us to trust that you are who you say you are. Fully God, fully man, and fully for us. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.